This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. For more information, visit TACC.org. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at MHM.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Dripcast for July 29th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week I am joined by our Washington DC fellow, Eric Nugaborn. Hey Eric. Hey Matthew. And our women's health reporter, Eleanor Klibanoff. Hello there, Eleanor. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. All right, so this week I wanna start by talking off about the CHIPS Act, which passed through Congress and was sent to uh, President Joe Biden's desk this week. It has created some kind of interesting political bedfellows in Texas where you had, you know, uh, Joe Biden, Greg Abbott, um, and uh, John Cornyn uh, in support of it, and Ted Cruz and a bunch of Republican members of the Texas House, or sorry, of the US House, in opposition to it, a, a kind of strange uh, grouping of, of politics there in, in, in that world. Eric, you have been following this for the Tribune. Before we get into that kind of political issue, tell us, first of all, what this bill actually does, um, you know, uh, nationwide. Yeah, so the bill really addresses concerns that Americans are having and politicians are having about the U.S. reliance on foreign countries' production of semiconductors, which are essentially chips that um, can power anything from a cell phone to a car. So they're a very important commodity. And over time, the U.S. share of global chip production has decreased significantly. So this bill, which provides 52 billion dollars in subsidies for um, many manufacturers who produce chips domestically and also provides a tax credit for investments in semiconductor manufacturing. It really tries to entice people to work on chip production in the United States. And it's especially important in Texas, which has been a leader in the US's chip production over the past decade, it's led the country in semiconductor exports for 11 straight years. So the idea is to really entice these manufacturers to return to the US and hopefully have the US regain its its standing as a global leader in chip production. Right, and this is important to the Biden administration for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, first of all, is just obviously we are in a, a society where so many products, so many uh, things are, are requiring semiconductors now that, you know, being a leader in manufacturing them can be very important economically and also just in terms of like the U.S. is standing in global trade. But we also saw right during this ongoing coronavirus pandemic situations where, you know, China is is shutting down entire cities in order to kind of maintain a, 
you know, COVID zero policy and how that can be disruptive kind of across the world and, and create real problems for the US. And, and I think a, a realization, right, that, that, that we need more of these very important products being produced here so that we're not as kind of at the, the mercy of, of the, you know, even domestic policies of other countries as well. But you mentioned that this is something that, that has been of particular interest to Texas. And we've been hearing from folks like Greg Abbott, Dave Phelan, the House Speaker on this. Uh, tell us kind of how they have played in on, on, on this discussion. Yeah, so they hope that this legislation will just bring more jobs to the state and bring some of the leading chip manufacturers to Texas. And some of these companies such as Samsung have already uh, announced plans for, for a big presence in the state. They announced a $17 billion investment last year into a chip making facility. And also um, as recently as this month announced plans or filed paperwork suggesting plans for 11 new chip making facilities in the Austin area. So they really hope that uh, Dade Phelan, Greg Abbott, they really hope that this legislation will bring more of these big companies to Texas and which will likely result in more jobs being brought to the state. Yeah, it's kind of an old fashioned, almost it's seemingly like Republican priority here, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're, we're putting you know economic incentives to grow industry. It's something that, um, you know, in, in my time covering Texas politics, we used to see a lot of from, from Governor Rick Perry and even Abbott kind of early in his term. Of course, we've seen things kind of take a turn in the last couple of years as, as these state leaders kind of get into fights with companies, you know, tech companies and things like that over things like social issues, over things like abortion, which we're going to talk about uh, later on in this in this show. Um, so, you know, it almost kind of felt nostalgic seeing this kind of rallying around behind it. It passes the Senate uh, earlier this week. Um, John Cornyn, uh, Greg Abbott celebrating its passage. It then goes on to the House. But then we see Eric, you know, in between the Senate vote and the House vote, Republicans kind of really turning against it. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, so late Wednesday night, Senate Democrats surprised basically everyone in Washington by announcing this sweeping legislation that addresses climate change and inflation and healthcare costs. And that really caught Republicans off guard. And the Senate Democrats did so strategically by announcing the bill after the Senate had already passed the semiconductor legislation, which they had been threatening to hold hostage if the Democrats pursued this kind of sweeping legislation. So as a result of that announcement by the Senate Democrats, leading House Republicans such as Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pushed their members to vote against this legislation, which had long been considered bipartisan. That effort essentially failed. 24 House Republicans still voted for the legislation. I was watching the votes as they came in yesterday. A lot of them did come in after it was the bill had passed the majority threshold. So they mm -hmm. knew the bill was going to pass. And once that happened, they knew they could vote for it without being the deciding factor and whether it would actually become law. So it was interesting to see Republicans struggle to whip votes against this legislation. And interestingly, as you mentioned at the beginning of this segment, most Texas House Republicans voted against the legislation. 
the only two that did were Kay Granger and Michael McCall. McCall was a huge proponent of this leg legislation from the start. He's the leading Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and uh, had an interesting comment yesterday saying the Communist Party, the Communist um, Party in China endorsed the leg or opposes the legislation. So we should not, um, we have to pass this legislation because the China government does not want us to pass this legislation. So it was an interesting thing to see how the votes played out and really saw a divergence between House Republicans from Texas and some of the most important Texas po political leaders such as Abbott and Dade Phelan. Yeah, so basically, according to, uh, you know, McCall's comment, you've got on one side, you know, Joe Biden, Greg Abbott, John Cornyn, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and on the other side, opposing it, you've got Bernie Sanders, most of the Texas House Republicans, and the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, really, uh, really clear, uh, uh, you know, dividing lines there. It's kind of fascinating to see that uh, break down like that. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something, as someone who follows the um, Texas legislature more closely than the, the U.S. Congress, I, I struggled, Eric, to understand why this made sense for all these Republicans, particularly the Texas Republicans, to be, you know, trying to shoot this down, you know, because of a completely unrelated bill. How is this, how does this make sense politically or even, you know, um, in terms of public policy to be, to be, you know, making this kind of quick turn on this uh, out of what kind of basically seemed like kind of retribution? Yeah, I don't uh, really know what the political angle is here. Um, I think it also is important to stress, we don't know how many Texas Republicans were planning to vote for the legislation mm -hmm. before the, the change in tone from leadership. Mm -hmm. I think there, I think it's just speaks to a general wariness of bipartisanship um, and working with Democrats is seen as just in some of these deep red congressional districts is just seen as uh, just, just the wrong thing to do from a Republican standpoint. So it, it, I don't, a lot of the Republicans who voted against the legislation haven't really released statements explaining why they did so, which I think tells us that they don't really have the, the most sound rationale for it. Mm -hmm. So it was, I, I, I'm still kind of unsure of the political play here. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, th thank you, Eric. Uh, let's pause for a minute to hear from our sponsors. Philanthropy advocates work to advance education policy, cradle to grave, is more important than ever. Learn more at philanthropyadvocates.org. And Texas Almanac. The 2022-23 Texas Almanac is now on sale. Get a copy for your home library today at legacyoftexas.com, Amazon, or your local bookstore. During the 2020 elections, there was a campaign ad that uh, has since gone viral two years later in which a uh, mother and her daughter are driving to the border, I believe in Texas, Eleanor, and they're pulled over by a member of law enforcement who then begins questioning them about whether or not they're driving, leaving the country in order to obtain an abortion. And the, the commercial ends with them kind of being asked to get out of the car and the implication that they are about to be arrested. 
there there's then I think some kind of message on this commercial saying basically is this the future you want in a post real world. We are now in said post real world and that commercial has like I said gone gone viral in the in the aftermath and we are now grappling with a situation where you know I think people are really wondering what prosecutions for abortions are actually going to look like. Eleanor you wrote about that commercial and this topic this week for the Texas Tribune. So what's the answer? What is this going to look like? I mean, I think a lot of it remains to be seen. And I think we're going to see a lot of, um, you know, very complicated uh, legal cases unfolding in the next, you know, months and years. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of fear right now about like, you know, how someone might find someone who has um, undergone an illegal abortion. And, you know, sort of as that commercial alluded to a lot of fear, you know, that we're going to have state border checkpoints or we're going to have, you know, people, um, you know, data mining to find people's, you know, data from people's period tracking apps and things like that. And sort of these like proactive widespread drag nets to find people who have uh, violated the abortion ban in Texas. And I think, you know, from the legal experts I've talked to, the reality is actually going to be, you know, what one expert said, you know, it's just much more mundane than that. It's going to be, um, you know, um, healthcare, you know, healthcare workers reporting people that they believe may have, uh, you know, undergone an illegal abortion, friends and family members of people, you know, these are going to be sort of proactive reporting of people who may be suspected of having undergone an illegal abortion and, um, you know, that is what will kick off these cases we anticipate. So Eleanor, you cited two recent examples, one in Texas and one in Mississippi as indications of kind of, these are things that happened prior to Dobbs, prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but that people might be looking at as examples of how things might happen in this post-Roe world. Let's start with the, the Texas example. Tell us, tell us what happened in that case. Right. So in that case, you know, several months ago, a woman in um, Star County, Texas, you know, um, down in the valley was, um, you know, according to court records, she uh, took, you know, um, self-managed an abortion. So she took abortion inducing medication um, that she'd obtained in Mexico. Um, and it was later in pregnancy, then you can take those medications safely. And she went to a hospital to deal with um the complications from that self-managed abortion and a healthcare worker called the police and uh, called the sheriff's office and reported her. Um, she was charged with murder for, um, a, you know, what they called a self-induced abortion. Um, those charges were dismissed in a matter of days because uh, Texas's murder statute specifically exempts both lawful abortions and uh, the pregnant patient from uh, being criminalized for an abortion. So those charges were completely unfounded, but it's a really good example of how even if the law says, you know, even if the law has exemptions written into it, people are going to get caught up in the criminal justice system while these legal technicalities get sorted out. Yeah, and I, we should pause here and, and make an important note, of course, that, um, you know, the, the Texas trigger law, the law that will go into effect on August 25th, um, that was written before Roe v. Wade was overturned to go into effect after Roe v. Wade was overturned, specifically exempts women or pregnant people from being prosecuted for obtaining an abortion. It's more the healthcare providers who would provide the abortion or people who otherwise help 
who who are more vulnerable to being prosecuted in this case, right? Right. So the pregnant patient cannot be criminalized or cannot be you know criminalized under the abortion law um, or under the state's murder statute. Um, you know, I think what advocates and lawyers are worried about is you know, there is no criminal prosecution without getting that pregnant person tangled up in the legal system somehow, right? I mean, their body is the only evidence in many cases that exists. And so, you know, there will be consequences for the pregnant people at the center of um, these cases, though in all likelihood, at least at this point, not consequences that will land them in prison. Yeah. Okay. So the the other example you mentioned in the story was a case out of Mississippi. Tell, tell us about that case. Right. So in that case, in that case, I think is, um, you know, a, a good example of the kind of thing we're going to see where this woman was um, pregnant. She, um, you know, was very far along in pregnancy. She uh, had a stillbirth, you know, by all evidence, um, you know, she delivered her um the baby at home in the toilet, uh, the baby was, you know, was born, you know, was not born alive. Um, when she went to the hospital, she said, you know, that she had not done anything to try to terminate that pregnancy. She initially said she didn't know she was pregnant. Then she said she did know, and she willingly turned her phone over to law enforcement and they, you know, uh, someone at the hospital called law enforcement, she turned over her phone and they found, you know, that she had searched for um, abortion inducing medications. There's no evidence she had taken the abortion inducing medications, but she had searched for them. And so they used that to, um, you know, bring uh, to, to bring felony charges against her. And um, those charges uh, were later um, not taken up by a grand jury. But again, she was, you know, in, in jail while that all got sorted out. Okay, so where we stand right now, of course, it has been reported that, um, and as I said earlier, the trigger law in Texas will go into effect August 25th. This is um, 30 days after the Supreme Court issued its kind of formal judgment in the Dobbs case, uh, allowing that that 30 day countdown to begin. But of course, as as you have reported, and as we have mentioned on this show, the you know, abortions have essentially halted in the state um, and people are kind of operating under the assumption that it is already legal due to past laws um, that, you know, remain on the books from pre-Roe v. Wade times. So what's going to change on August 25th? Um, On August 25th, the penalties for abortion will uh, really ratchet up. It also will become very like crystal clear that abortion is illegal in Texas. You know, I think there's a lot of legal questions right now swirling around the pre-row statutes and whether the laws on the books right now could, you know, they certainly are are enough to stop the clinics from providing abortions. Are they enough to hold up in court and like, um, you know, put someone in prison we don't know. There hasn't been a legal challenge, but the trigger law is uh, sort of a much more traditional criminalization of pregnancy and sort of of abortion and sort of removes a lot of those legal questions. So once that goes into effect, abortion will be, you know, again, the person who performs an abortion will be criminalized, um, you know, up to life in prison, um, as well as a hundred thousand dollar fine and, you know, administrative penalties, like losing their medical license and stuff like that. So uh, it's, you know, it will become very clearly and very significantly criminalized in Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing that you've been reporting this week is about what is happening with the abortion clinics that, you know, operated in the state 
prior to uh, Roe v. Wade um, and operated more fully prior, I guess, to SB 8, the other abortion law that came in. Um, it seems as though the question that, that clinics are having to ask are, as you stated in your story, stay and provide other you know, non-abortion services or relocate and go somewhere else in the state? What are you hearing from the clinics about what they're, what they're doing? So, you know, it sort of depends on which clinics we're talking about. So Planned Parenthood, which, you know, uh, represents a good portion of the um, uh, abortion clinics in Texas, they, you know, abortion is just one small piece of what of the services that they provide. So they provide other reproductive healthcare services. They provide cancer screening, primary care, STI testing, education, all that stuff. And so removing abortion from their, you know, list of um, uh, services that they're able to provide at those clinics, you know, is not devastating to their business model. Um, in a lot of cases, Planned Parenthood clinics do not provide abortions. You know, just a small handful of their clinics provide abortions. So they've said they're staying, they're keeping their doors open, and they're going to keep providing other non-abortion services at all of those clinics at this point. Uh, the independent clinics, which are the non-Planned Parenthood clinics, are facing a much tougher choice. In most cases, the only thing they did was abortion and post-abortion care. And so they, you know, many of them, all of them have stopped providing abortions. Many of them have said that they are going to move uh, to states where they can continue to provide abortion. So Whole Women's Health, which has four clinics, the largest independent provider in Texas, is relocating. They're closing all four Texas clinics and relocating to Mexico uh, to New Mexico um, and are currently fundraising for that move. Um, Alamo Women's Reproductive uh, Services um, in San Antonio is relocating one facility to New Mexico and one to Illinois. Um, and then some of the other independent clinics for the time being are staying open to provide ultrasounds and other care as they sort of try to figure out what the business model could be if not providing abortions. All right. Well, thank you, Eleanor. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Eric. Um, thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Philanthropy Advocates, and the Texas Almanac. We'll talk to you all next week. Join us at the 2022 Texas Tribune Festival, Texas's breakout politics and policy event. Over three days of big ideas in politics, policy, and beyond. September 22nd through the 24th in downtown Austin. Hear from Michael Tubbs, Mark Vesey, Brooke Pop, and many others. See more speakers and buy tickets at tribfest.org.